Hello, I'm your host Kota, and you are listening to Against Japanism podcast. For today's episode, I'm presenting part two of an interview with Dr. Gavin Walker about the history of Marxism in Japan, focusing on the post war period starting in the late 1940s. First, we discussed the reason behind the Japanese Communist Party's re emergence as a mass party in the immediate post war period. As mentioned in part one, in the 1920s and 30s, the JCP was a member of the Communist International, or the Comintern, also known as the Third International, headquartered in the Soviet Union. Throughout its existence, members of the Comintern, who were representatives from communist parties from around the world, debated the meaning of fascism and how communists should respond to this rising far right movement. As capitalism went into a series of crises during this period, they initially adopted a position that capitalism was in its final days and revolution was inevitable, and saw reformist social democracy as the primary enemy of the working class, blocking the path to proletarian revolution. This was called the thesis on social fascism, equating social democracy and fascism. As two sides of the same coin. However, with the rise of the Nazi Party to power and the subsequent anti communist repression in Germany, the Comintern shifted its anti fascist strategy to seeking broad based alliance with non communist forces. This period of the Comintern's existence is known as the Popular Front period. While this debate was also taking place in Japan, it was cut short due to the intense state repression culminating in the Com Academy incident of 1936 and the Popular Front incident of 1937. The former was a mass arrest of the Kozaha Marxists and the latter the Ronoha, despite its renunciation of the Comintern and underground organizing. It was not until the 1945 to 1947, when the Japanese left experienced a brief moment of relative freedom under the US led Allied occupation, that the JCP was really able to put the Popular Front policy into practice in the form of Democratic People's Front, which was, however, largely rejected by its rival, Socialist Party of Japan, controlled by right wing Social Democrats. Seeing the resurgence of militant labor movement in Japan and confronted with the specter of communism in Asia, the US reversed its previous defascization policy to turn Japan into a bastion of anti communism. In doing so, they severely restricted civil liberties and workers' rights on the pretext that social movements and labor unions are hotbed. Of communist organizing, while releasing the wartime fascist leaders from prison and restoring them to power. Once again driven underground, the JCP turned to armed struggle in 1951. We discuss how the Chinese Revolution and Maoism 
influenced the JCP of this period and the Japanese New Left, and how the JCP's abandonment of armed struggle in 1955 and subsequent turn to reformism shaped the political landscape of the 1960s and 70s. We also discuss how the post war Japanese left grappled with the questions of nationalism and internationalism. Finally, we conclude our interview by discussing how we can study and write history differently. Not to idealize or trivialize the past, but to critique the present in the service of class struggle and revolution. I learned so much from talking to Gavin, and I'm really grateful for him taking nearly two hours to share his knowledge with us. And thanks to all the listeners for tuning in. If you like this podcast, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Against Japanism Podcast and Instagram at Against Japanism. You can also email your feedback, criticism, and inquiries to againstjapanism at gmail.com. Without further ado, here is part two of Against Japanism Podcast interview with Gavin Walker. Enjoy. In your interview、uh, with Jacobin,、uh, you did recently, you said that JCP was the only party that didn't collaborate with the fascist regime. Can you elaborate on this comment? What other parties were there, and how did the international debate on fascism, such as the Comintern thesis on social fascism and its turn to the Popular Front strategy, Influenced the communist movement in Japan? Yeah, well, I want to, I'll, I'll clarify and say obviously, I'm sure there are plenty of political parties around of a very small character who also didn't quote unquote collaborate with fascism. But certainly by the time that comment came in the context of talking about the post war electoral sphere, and particularly 1947 48, when the process that we now call the reverse course. Was underway, the transfer essentially of American hegemony、um, and its policy in Japan from the defascization of the Japanese state to instead the control of the communist threat in Japan due to the geopolitics of the Cold War. At that period in the electoral sphere, the Japan Communist Party was certainly the only mass party, in other words, the only party capable of literally running in elections and having a kind of、uh, Mass presence alongside the Japan Socialist Party, I think it has to be said,、uh, that didn't collaborate. And the reason for that, of course, is, is in the sheer evidence that the figures of the Japan Communist Party, like Nosaka Sanzo, like Tokuda Kyuichi,、uh, these, these were people who were either in exile from Japan for、uh, 15 years or were in prison for 15 years. And、um, if you're imprisoned, you usually can't collaborate. So Uh, the, the, the figures like this really gave a, an important legitimacy to the post war、um, JCP. But I think one of the things, you know, to sort of go back from that, that post war electoral moment just to the Popular Front for a brief second, it has to be said that the Popular Front was really kind of the moment when the Japanese state cracked down completely on Marxism. So, The Popular Front really comes up、uh, in 35 in, in the Soviet Union at the Seventh Congress of the Common Term. 
Um, and that's when the Popular Front is really is really um, uh, put forward as a as a as a project. Uh, Kushinen, for instance, Otto Kushinen, who we talked about earlier, writes some important texts in this time period on the Popular Front and the tasks of the Japanese communists in the in 19, 1930s. Um, but very quickly, I think we see that the Popular Front really terrified the Japanese state. Um, the Popular Front was particularly worrying to the Japanese state because it internationalized and relativized what was happening in Japan as fascism. It identified what was going on in Japan as part of an international kind of axis, quote unquote. And it posed against this, this broad concept of a sort of uh, democratic uh, struggle against uh, imperialism, fascism, and, and so forth. Now, of course, we know that the Popular Front didn't last very long in the post-war period under the effect of the Cold War. But at the time, the Japanese state was very concerned about this, obviously, because it not only sort of called the state what it was, but it had uh, a mass international appeal that was much larger than the communist movement. It was possible to say, we think fascism is not a good thing and not be a communist around the world. So um, immediately following this in 1936 is the so-called, uh, you know, this, this strange moment when essentially the state arrests everyone involved in the Kozaha. It's the so-called Kom Academy Jiken, the, the communist academy incident. And it was a completely trumped up nonsensical uh, uh, set of arrests in which um, the uh, authors essentially of the Nihon Shionchu Yihatatsu Koza were accused by the, um, by the state of being a kind of a small local version of the Common Turns Academic Bureau. So, they, so their international association with the Common Turn was the pretext under which they were arrested. Um, and after 36, therefore, the, nobody in the Kozaha wrote anything it, it, unless they, they performed Tenko and became and went to the, to the, to the right wing, like Hirano Yoshitaro, for instance. Um, but everyone else in the Kozaha, for instance, Yamada Moitaro, did nothing for the rest of the war years. He essentially went to Manchuria with Mantetsu, like a lot of uh, economic analysts and wrote kind of obscure studies of, of, of railways until the post-war. Um, in 1937, the Donoha figures were arrested in the so-called this kind of Dono group professors incident. And they were arrested, interestingly enough, um, on the basis of the newly promulgated uh, peace preservation law, the um, uh, the uh, what is it, Gianijiho. And so by 37, essentially Marxist theory was, was, was not being done in Japan. I mean, and, and that was the end of the debate on Japanese capitalism in, in 36, uh, 37, it couldn't go further. Um, in that sense, the international debate on fascism in and around the late 30s was there's not a huge amount on it uh, because you couldn't talk about this. It was, it was purely censored and uh, Marxist publications completely ceased to exist essentially until the post-war period from 37 
uh, onwards. So in a sense, what there really was, was instead a big debate in the post-war period on what the effects of the Popular Front had been on the communist movement in Japan and how they affected, for instance, the character of the JCP leading into those decades of political upheaval from the late 50s uh, onwards. So while this was happening, there is a revolutionary war happening in China against Japanese imperialism. Uh, followed by a uh, civil war between the communists and nationalists. How did the Chinese revolution influence the communist movement in Japan? How did the Japanese left respond to Maoism and its inventions like uh, the strategy of protracted people's war, the mass line and the cultural revolution? How did the disagreement between the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, also known as the Sino-Soviet split, affect the Japanese Communist Party? Well, there's there's quite a lot to say actually about this in in a couple of ways, and some of it is um, some of it is is uh, sort of uh, understudied, I would say. I mean, I think one thing that is important is to say this this went through a series of periods so during the war you know one of the kind of great leaders of uh, the japan um, communist party uh, nosaka sanzo was of course in china in yanan with the chinese communist uh, party and had for a long time been a, a sort of important figure bridging the Japanese communist movement and the Chinese communist movement. Um, having said that, of course, this made him completely persona non grata under the fascist state, but you know, it, it, made, it, it made clear that the Japanese communist movement had um, a kind of, open orientation, at least two aspects of the Chinese line. So certainly in the 1950s and, and, and the late 1940s, the Japan Communist Party was very open to the Chinese line. In fact, very inspired by it in a sense. This is the most difficult period of this question to address because it is the period for which it will be very difficult for anyone to do really concrete history. And that is the period from the reverse course of the American occupation, so roughly 40, 47, 48, to the Sixth Congress of the Japan Communist Party in 1955, when the party repudiates any strategy of direct action, uh, armed struggle, uh, underground work, clandestine work, etc., and instead sort of uh, acknowledges the parliamentary road uh, uh, to socialism and goes into to government. So during that period of, of the late 40s into the early 50s, the Japan Communist Party has elements within it that are quite close to the Chinese line, quite close to an interest in the strategies of protracted people's war uh, and so forth, as, as you mentioned, and inspired by that kind of clandestine guerrilla warfare a uh, notion of, of, of mass work in the villages, uh, going to the hinterland to encircle the cities and so forth. Now, this strategy was 
objectively a failure. And it wasn't just that the Japanese um, Communist Party repudiated the line of armed struggle. It was also that the strategy itself was undercut very heavily by the American occupation's land reforms, for instance, which actually, for all for all of their uh, for all of the problems with with uh, American occupation policy and its refusal to really defascize the state, um, the American occupation had undertaken a certain amount of land reform sufficient to keep the peasants, particularly in in the rural areas uh, of of Japan, from uh, really seeing in this kind of uh, armed struggle orientation a viable uh, pathway. So, in a sense, the 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 JCP's attempt to take the Chinese line didn't really work in the immediate post-war period. But of course, then Maoism emerged as well, right? And so, from the victory of the Chinese Revolution in 1949 through the Great Leap Forward. Uh, in the 50s, I would say that there was a certain influence of the, of the Chinese communist movement within the official Japanese communist movement. By the 1960s, and therefore in the wake of the Sino-Soviet split, I mean, I, I think that there, there comes to be uh, something different. Very few of the new left organizations in Japan chose the Chinese side in the Sino-Soviet split. Most chose the Soviet side or regarded the Sino-Soviet split itself as a kind of an error of the international communist movement. Um, there were Maoist organizations, splits usually from the communist party. So the, 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 the most famous of which probably or infamous is the group, the so-called Kakume Saha, which was the, the split from uh, the Kansai Communist Party um, and which uh, eventually became part of the United Red Army in the uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And they had been quite Mao influenced, but the influence of Maoism uh, in the sort of communist organizations in Japan and the sects in particular was small. In this respect, Japan bore more resemblance to uh, perhaps uh, Britain, uh, the British uh, New Left in the dominance of Trotskyism outside the official communist parties. Um, but uh, of course there were other more intellectual orientations too. So for instance, one of the key figures that I would say I would have liked actually to address more in the volume um, we've just done on, on 68 and which I, I plan to, to write about um, in the future uh, would be the, the theorist Sumura Takashi who wrote in 1971, for instance, under or 1970, I should say, uh, under the influence of the Cultural Revolution um, the very, very important text, Warada Nuuchinaru Sabetsu, the discrimination within us, which was a kind of polemic within the new left on the kind of um, ignorance of the Japanese left of Asia and the need to create a new uh, articulation between Asia and the Japanese uh, communist movement. So I think, and, and Tsumura was very much influenced not just by uh, the Cultural Revolution and by Mao's thought, but by 
uh, sort of China in general, Chinese culture, um, and a whole series of, of, of relations to, to China. Um, uh, Tsumura sadly passed away uh, just last year. Um, but uh, I, I think, so I think that there are actually quite interesting little pockets of uh, the impact of the Cultural Revolution in particular on Japan. And certainly there was a presence of slogans and iconography of Maoism within the Japanese student movement. Of course, you know, famously at the, the, the occupation of the University of Tokyo in 1969, the, the, the famous uh, slogan of, of the Cultural Revolution, you know, um, uh, there is no guilt in revolution, you know, Kakume Muzai, and then uh, uh, the, it is correct to rebel, Zohan Yudi, right? Um, these, these were inscribed on the, on the gates, you know, uh, by, by uh, the University of Tokyo, and Mao's picture was seen and so forth. But I think that the, the, the story of the influence of Maoism in Japan is a, a quite minor one in, in relation to the left. I don't think Maoism was ever a dominant trend, but there was this interesting passageway from one Maoism, that is that of the kind of, well, really before Maoism, simply the influence of, of the Chinese revolutionary process on the official communist movement in the 1940s and early 50s in this kind of liminal clandestine moment of the Japan Communist Party, which I think is a very, very interesting historical moment, but profoundly difficult to study, not least because, you know, the Japan Communist Party is still a, an absolutely existing party and you can't, you can't really find a, a tremendous amount of documentation of this period of, of literally uh, illegal um, underground struggle. Um, but then the, the passage that's important is the passage from that one to the 19. 60s, where Maoism becomes much more kind of linked to its international significations that we would have regarding the new communist movement, the new left. Maoism becomes a sort of symbol of third world liberation, third world struggle. And that position, while it was represented in the new left in Japan, was not dominant. That position was, was small. Um, so I think this, the, the, the answer is that uh, simply there was um, there was a, a very uh, there was a very kind of polyvalent aspect to Maoism and the the image of China in in uh, the moment. Um, that perhaps that sort of answers a little bit your next question about armed struggle uh, too. But that really that really shaped that really shaped the the emergence of of the nineteen fifties nineteen sixties student movement. How did the JCP's rejection of armed struggle and subsequent turn to reformism shape the political landscape of the Japanese 60s? So this, you know, obviously in part, you know, I've already mentioned a little bit about this, this, this period, the rejection of armed struggle in 55. I, I mean, one of the, the ways that it shaped the, the emerging movements of the, the 60s in particular was simply to have shown uh, before it has to be said, uh, the emergence of sort of anti-Stalinism as a real current in the wake of 1956, 57, 58, it had already shown in 55 that the Japan Communist Party was not upholding the sort of political enthusiasm of the youth. 
so there had been this experience of of the so-called Sanson Kosaktai, the the mountain village operations corps, um, who were essentially student kind of uh, volunteers who who had quite literally followed the the Chinese line in a sense. This was very much going down to the countryside, quote unquote, in the in the Maoist parlance, um, and. Uh, the party had really repudiated this experience and sort of pulled the rug out from under these these young people. And they found this a tremendous betrayal. You know, there's a famous novel actually about this experience, which was so widespread in the in the 50s. It's Shibata Shou's Sarido Waragahibi, which is kind of a, a very sentimental novel about having your ideals betrayed and what have you. Um, but sort of indicates the degree to which this was so widespread, this sentiment of being betrayed by the JCP and being betrayed by its turn to a parliament and its kind of rejection of direct action. Um, the, the 50s kind of groups were also, the 50s is a really interesting decade. And you know, it's understudied because it doesn't have the kind of great uh, social movements of the 60s, these mass upheavals and the kind of, you know, uh, uh, millions of people in front of the national diet and so forth. But the 50s is very interesting. And a lot of historiographical work on 50s social movements has been done in Japan in the last 15 years or so, these studies of the workers' circles movement, of figures like Tanigawa Gan or Morisaki Kazue, of um, these, these kind of uh, proletarian circles like the Shimomariko uh, group in Tokyo. And, you know, in a, in a sense, the 50s saw this bifurcation where the Japan Communist Party no longer was the sole bearer of what it meant to be on the left, critical of the Japanese state, critical of post-war Japanese capitalism, critical of imperialism um, and so forth. It was possible to make other, other movements that were in some cases more, more radical or more openly radical at any rate. And there was a kind of general cultural rejection in some ways of the old left, which is actually not uh, something um, uh, new. I mean, it certainly wasn't something uniquely Japanese that was occurring all across uh, the advanced capitalist countries in this time period. So in, in that sense, uh, what I think really marked the emergence of the 60s left was simply this process of untethering the left generally from the Communist Party as its as its kind of headquarters, so to speak. And that is precisely the same process that took place um, all over the world. I mean, some of that is enabled by factors that are well outside the sort of space of, of high theory and, and left politics. Some of it is simply the increasing uh, rate of, of mass enrichment in Japan at the time. I mean, which is, you know, paralleling in some ways the, that of, of, of Europe and North America, the increasing sort of distance from the immediate post-war period with its deprivations and, and so on, but also a period of radical upheaval, you know, the, 
the decolonization movements across Africa are occurring, the student movements uh, in uh, the West, the uh, Cuban revolution of 59, the development of the kind of Latin American armed movements uh, and so forth, the, the world was kind of in motion and the communist party didn't seem to be at the forefront of that anymore. Um, and I think that, that that above all else, that kind of diffuse cultural space of, of struggle and of critique that was not solely based on the legitimacy of the JCP was uh, an important part of it. And the JCP was aging by this time already. You know, this was, this was a, uh, it was already an old people's party by then. Um, how did the post-war Japanese left grapple with the national question and the question of internationalism? This is a big, big question. And, you know, since at some level we're, we're still in the post-war, um, I, I can't speak to the entirety of the, the, the post-World War II moment, I suppose, but I, I think a couple of things are pretty important to say about this. Number one, there was, there was a move which I think has been extensively written about by historians, not of Marxism or, or of, of, of the left even necessarily, but about, and this goes back maybe even to your first question about, about, about area studies, but it has to be remembered that at the moment in August 1945 of the surrender of the Japanese state to the American forces, Japan, was not simply an island archipelago, but a quite massive empire encompassing a whole series of kind of state formations and cultural spheres that no longer exist. Um, and that imperial kind of background, which was, and I, I, I of course, I, I'm not giving any form of justification for it, but the fact of its existence was a certain kind of cosmopolitanism and a certain kind of fascist multiculturalism, <laughs> if you will. Um, after the war, part of the American occupation, part of the American occupation's cultural strategy was not just to defascize the Japanese state, which it quickly gave up on, but to sort of re-Japanize the state. This was a very, very important part of the American occupation. It's partly why the American occupation was so obsessed with the emperor system, maintaining it, in, uh, strengthening it, uh, making the emperor system the emblem of post-war Japanese ethnic homogeneity and also uh, kind of uh, ideological homogeneity. So I think one thing that's important to say in this background is that the Japanese state was very, very much kind of decosmopolitanized in the wake of, of empire. Um, now, of course, that uh, is not at all to say that somehow the existence of Japanese empire was a good thing. It was absolutely not. It was a, a very kind of a central example in the history of the 20th century of the oppression and deprivation brought by imperialism. But the loss of empire and the loss of the culture of that empire in Japan resulted in a kind of 
new intensification of a new definition of Japaneseness, which was based on the notion of ethnic homogeneity and even of, of, of sort of closedness to the world. And that had very intense consequences in my view, not just for the left, but for all institutional uh, features uh, of the Japanese state. One of the things that that resulted in, of course, for the left was to some extent a de-internationalization of the left. I think in a way the pre-war Japanese left was more international in its outlook than the immediate post-war Japanese left. That might be a very polemical thing to say, but uh, the reason I, I say that, and I don't think that's true anymore, I think that the, the things have changed quite remarkably in, in recent years, but the Japanese left of course had one very important uh, point, which was that the tradition of Marxist theory, Marxist philosophy, uh, Marxist kind of theory of science, Marxist historiography, and so forth in Japan was so strong that there was no need really to read material from elsewhere. Um, you could become an extraordinarily sophisticated Marxist thinker uh, simply within the orbit of, of Japanese language materials. And I think that had unfortunate consequences in the sort of very inward looking um, kind of uh, methodological debates in some cases of post-war Marxist theory, which were quite arcane and are almost impossible to now put out in other languages because you have to translate every, every position in a debate uh, in order for people to have a grasp of, um, of what's going on. But I think that the, so this, there was this aspect of sort of national, nationalization and de-internationalization that took place under the force of the American occupation. But of course, at the same time, the fact of the American occupation and the fact that the American occupation was itself a form of, if not colonialism then at the very least uh, subordination um, of the Japanese state to American imperialism made the duty of internationalism very important for the 60s left. After all, they knew very clearly the 60s left that it was impossible to sort of simply externalize the source of of critique. You couldn't simply say, you know, the terrible Americans, they're doing all this imperialist nonsense. Uh, the, it was impossible to say this because the Japanese state was very much the active participant of American imperialism in that sense. And the dominant Japanese politics led by the LDP, of course, and of course, by the first <laughs> prime minister uh, under American occupation, Kishi Nobusuke, who uh, um, was of course a, a fascist bureaucrat um, and actually a quite high ranking uh, one, um, meant that Japanese imperialism for the post-war left was still, uh, was still around. But now it wasn't its own imperialism, it was a kind of sub-imperialism that created a network of supports for American imperialism. So of course there was a duty to a certain internationalism. And the Marxist tradition has always been the, the internationalist political position 
um, par excellence effectively in the world because uh, it is one of the sole positions available politically, not based on national uh, development or or uh, any kind of narrow nationalism, but precisely as you pointed out earlier, um, a form of acknowledgement of the capitalist character of the national border uh, and so forth. So without question, Marxists of the 60s and the uh, post-war period were internationalists. They were concerned also, for instance, with the fact that American imperialism's uh, dominance and, and subordination of Japan militarily meant that American imperialism prosecuted the Korean War and of course the wars in, in former French Indochina from Japan. Japan was, Japan's economic development of the 1950s was intimately linked to the Korean War and to, uh, and later on uh, to the Vietnam War and so forth. So there was an internationalism and a serious one of this character. However, I think that, as I mentioned, Tsumura Takashi's book earlier, the Wadaran uh, Narusabetsu, which is uh, a very powerful book, suggesting in a sense that the Japanese left had not yet really encountered Asia at all. I think this perspective remains fairly important today, particularly in the wake right now, of course, as we're, as we're speaking, we're, we're in the wake of, of all of these uh, controversies over the historical record and so forth, um, and the legacy of Japanese uh, empire in, in, in Asia. But I think that there was certainly a, a difficulty of grappling with the national question, not least because Japan had passed itself from being a multinational, multilingual empire to a kind of new enforced inward nationalism within a short period of time, even grappling therefore with how to approach the category of uh, the nation and of national identity, I think has been a longstanding difficulty for the Japanese left being neither sort of in Asia nor out of it. I mean, that goes back to the, the Meiji period in some sense and the development of imperialism. But I think that the Japanese left still grapples with this problem. And part of it is really dealing frontally with the legacy of, of Japanese empire. Of course, today we, we live in a very different moment and the national, the national element, I think, has been irrevocably changed by both the the end of the Soviet Union, the burst of the bubble, and the so-called lost decades, um, in which there is a resurgence of nationalism, but equal a kind of equally a kind of internationalization of Japanese society of a different character. But this is a sort of separate question. I would say for the post-war Japanese left, the national question remained um, remained very difficult, and not just the national question around the world, the, the national question of Japan. Was Japan now a kind of subordinate semi-colony of the United States? What was the relationship that Japanese socialists should have to the nation? Could the nation be positively reclaimed? Of course, 
certain uh, sects of, of the 1960s and particularly the 1970s, like the Higashi Aji Ahamichi Busou Sensen, you know, uh, literally argued Japan is now not overwhelmed with feudal remnants. Japan is overwhelmed with fascist remnants and has to be destroyed. I mean, that was their 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 line essentially. Um, but I think that you know we can see from from that the kind of from the extreme of the the, the East Asia anti-Japanese armed front to uh, the the sort of JCP's kind of soft, what should we say, um, not not really uh, not uncritical, but uh, somewhat accommodation to a certain type of Japanese nationalism. Um, I think uh, we see the the. The structure of the problem that it's it's the long-standing question of of uh, of the Japanese left, and I think that's that's similar actually to other places in the world. I think the British left has always actually had this uh, amazing difficulty of dealing with the national question as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think while Japan is no longer an empire as it was during and before the World War Two, I think. Japanese imperialism in a like Leninist sense um, still remains today. I think, especially in relation to the global south. Absolutely. And I think the question of migration and movements around migrant justice is really central to this. There is a movement in opposition to migrant detention mm. and around the rights of. Uh, migrant workers and refugees and many of the, these workers migrants and refugees ca- come from the global south um, especially southeastern asian countries like the philippines and vietnam and indonesia which used to be a japanese colony so there's definitely japanese neocolonialism happening today although it's you know we can't really talk about it without Japan's subordination or partnership with uh, American imperialism. Absolutely. But I think the Japanese left has to confront the question, you know, of internationalism. And there is a sign of that happening. A lot of uh, leftist groups like Chukaka and other groups are coming around um, the struggle around Nukon uh, immigration in Japan. So. Yeah. In your work, you are very critical of historiography, which treats history as a thing of the past or a set of interesting facts that have no bearings on the present. How can we study and write history differently? How can our understanding of the two historical conjunctures uh, that you write about, uh, the interwar period or pre-war period, and the Japanese 60s. How can your study of these moments inform our theoretical and practical work today? Um, yeah, that's, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, I really appreciate your questions because this is, you know, it's not just, it's not just my work, but I think also uh, something that I really want to 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 think about with with you with with other people with anyone who's who's working on this type of question one of the things that's so crucial i think is to for people who are interested in the political and uh, kind of theoretical lessons 
of the recent historical past is how to deal with this material, how to make this material, um, you know, without wanting to sound kind of, you know, crazy or something, uh, how to make this material dangerous. Um, that might sound kind of bizarre, but I, I think it's very sad when we kind of domesticate radical thought or when we kind of domesticate the history of revolutionary practice. I think it, it's, it's a very sad thing because instead of shocking us or instead of giving us a kind of jolt in our you know, bourgeois liberal complacency, we often, we, we, re, we realize the extraordinary power of human beings to domesticate literally everything and make the most radical propositions simply part of the wallpaper, so to speak. So I think that one of the things that interests me is actually the process by which people do that, of course, which I think is political. I think it's a political way of writing history to say, um, let's look at some, some radical events, but then let's, uh, let's, let's remember not the kind of struggles they were based on, but just kind of how complex the cool trivia is. And isn't it interesting that you know, the militants of the FLN ate a specific kind of sandwich and where did the sandwich come from? And, you know, this kind of thing, or, you know, who slept with who in the organization and, you know, isn't that uh, kind of titillating and exciting? You know, this kind of stuff is really the, 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 the lifeblood of, of social history today. And it, it, it's, it's very dangerous in my view and almost even a pernicious kind of depoliticization of historical analysis, which, is always devoted to reminding us what we've inherited as the historical status quo didn't need to be this way. That status quo is the result of political defeats, of political victories, of struggles, of struggles that were wiped out, of struggles that failed, but it's the result of those. And our status quo is in no way some kind of historical given. Uh, it's not uh, an inevitable outcome of the historical process. So. I want to kind of, you know, think through these moments. You know, I happen to be looking at them in in Japan in these in these texts. You know that you, that we've been talking about. Um, you know this this book and and the previous one. But I, you know this 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 doesn't have to be done in Japan. And you know the point is is that the Japanese experience is not just an interesting thing for. Japanese people or for people interested in the history of Japan, that it's, it's, these are examples of human beings on our earth, on the same earth with us, attempting to revolutionize their conditions of existence, to emancipate themselves from forms of oppression and to create forms of, of really rebellion and historical you know, total cosmic transformation of their circumstances in their time and in the constraints that are given us by the fact that we live in specific bodies in specific parts of the world. But th there are lessons in all of that for, for people all around the world. There, there are major lessons in the pre-war Japanese left in particular for us today about the, the forms of fascism we see. I mean, we 
we didn't even mention him, but uh, you know, the great Marxist cultural critic of the interwar period, Tosaka Jun, um, is an amazingly prescient thinker for our immediate moment of the resurgence of, of fascism and of new kind of imperialisms and so forth. Uh, particularly, you know, I think of his texts on the, the concept of fascism as an atmosphere, which I think has, has something really powerful to say to us today in the rise of the alt-right and kind of new youth fascisms, Neto Uyo in Japan and, and so forth, you know. The principle for me is the study of history should be dangerous, the study of history should make us uncomfortable, and the study of history should put into question the givenness that we see around us, the givenness of the state, the givenness of the national arrangement, the givenness of the capitalist economy, et cetera. We, it's not that long ago that people basically said, we're gonna overturn all of this in the service of emancipatory politics. And I think that that, that aim is what we should be studying history for, what we can politically get out of it as a set of tools, not just for like cool facts, you know, but unfortunately the discipline of history today is largely totally depoliticized. And in fact, the study of radical movements is, is being totally depoliticized. The, the new thing to do in historical analysis is to study radical movements, but to, to complicate them, to say, oh, you know, in fact, these people who wanted to change the world, they, they weren't all good. You know, some of them did bad things and had bad attitudes. Well, this is just profoundly boring. And just, you know, in my view, uh, cheap liberalism to say that therefore there's some kind of invalidation of the aim for emancipation and the aim for insurrectionary politics. It's part and parcel of a kind of generalized liberalism and positivism that has infected historical analysis to the point of no longer actually being about the how, how the past weighs on the brains of the living like a nightmare, but rather uh, how history should give us a kind of small titillating commodities that make us kind of uh, purse our lips and say, hmm. So I think overthrowing that type of, of historical analysis is also crucial for the left because the left is global, the left is international, and the stories of those who fought for an emancipatory politics are crucial for us to discover as our interlocutors, not just as kind of figures sealed into this inaccessible past, but people whose aims, who literally we kind of still, even today, share a discourse with. I think restoring that shared discursivity is it's extremely important when we study radical politics, because if not, then there's no difference between studying radical politics and studying, you know, the history of, of the making of cotton candy or something. And there is a difference. The difference is one has lessons to give us about how to overturn the order we've inherited. And I think that has to be, that has to be the horizon, the overturning of the existing order. Yeah, this kind of museum mentality to the study of history, right? Like we want- That's right. Kind of curiosity, passive spectatorship. But we really have to take it out of that and put it, you know, take it to the streets. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, that's right. And I think, you know, who, who had a good phrase for that was actually Tosaka Jun. Tosaka Jun called uh, his work doing criticisms, uh, doing uh, critique, but he called it exposing the, the history of, of thought and of custom and so forth to what he called gaito no jujitsu, right? The, the, the facts of the streets, right? And that kind of reality or fact, facticity of the streets is what we have to, we have to read the historical record for because fascism is also on the street. It's not, a, it's not just a, in a book, uh, you know, the oppressions suffered daily by people uh, around the world as a function of imperialism, as a regime of capitalist accumulation are concrete and on the street and not, not just in a book. And we need, not, we, don't, we don't need to refuse theory or kind of worship the concrete, but to take that concreteness into theory too and give us, give us tools for thinking about how to live in a world that we want to change. I think that's absolutely crucial. And I think that the history of the left in Japan is, is, is a crucial and precious kind of um, library of struggles for the entire world and not just for, not just for Japan. Right, I think that's a perfect way to end it. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the show, you. Dr. Gavin Walker. Yeah, absolutely, I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. It's, you know, those great questions. And I, uh, as you can tell, because I went on for two hours after saying I'd only be on for an hour, <laughs> I, I, it's hard for me to shut up about. It. <laughs>